0: I got a meeting in the girls' room. Do you wanna come with Boo? I got a meetin' in the girls' room. Do you wanna come with Boo? Ooh, do you wanna come come with? with? Girl, I got some more to say. Even though I tangent my ass off, I thought it was best to leave some things for later when I was scripting season one. So... Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode six of Do You Want to Come With? I'm your host, David McKeever, now in Technicolor. This is the first official video episode of Do You Want to Come With? We're now on YouTube, and by we, I mean the royal we. Hi. Um, You can see me in all my fabulous red glory today. I'm wearing a gorgeous, my favorite red top, a gorgeous red top, um, tank top underneath the red shirt. Um, and then I'm wearing a very pretty, very beautiful skirt that's red and pink and a little bit of purple, I would say. So anyways, um, all the episodes of season one, are out now. It's very exciting. You can go and take a listen. I would recommend listening in order. Um, and I got some bonus content coming soon. You know, I have my original interview with Emma um, and my original interview with Lila and my original interview with Zoe. So some fun little things coming out. Two of those will be video episodes as well. Very excited about that. And season two, potty talk is still on its way. I'll be sitting down with people, having conversations, bringing them on the pod, and we're gonna, you know, talk about the potty, talk about the bathroom. You know, that's potty talk. So (laughs) uh, just a little, uh, you know, logistics thing. Um, I might be Uh, There might be some uh, time in between episodes from here on out, um, at least between season one and season two. There might be a few weeks off, just to let you know. But i got more stuff coming, and you're going to be thoroughly pleased through your ears by my content. So, yes, thank you very much. The color of the week this week, in case you haven't guessed it, is red. You know, look at me. Look at me in my red. Um, Red like like fire, you know, but fire is actually really orange. So I guess red, yellow, and orange, there's multiple colors there, but like a red and like a scarlet, like a, like the scarlet leather, you know, red, like the scarlet leather. Um, my message today is be confident, bitch. Like, come on, that's it. Um, and my gossip today is okay. So this guy that I used to, you know, dot, 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 um, he messaged me on Snapchat that he missed me. First off, I've deleted Snapchat a few months ago. It's a fucking hellscape for me, especially when it has to do with like men and then men giving me attention. Like I eat that shit up and then I like wait by the phone to get a Snapchat back. And then you can do the thing where you're left on open and they tell you, see, I don't fuck with people who do read receipts. I don't fuck with that shit. So... Snapchat is like, I was allowing that for to go on for way too long and I realized I couldn't anymore. So I delete Snapchat. I only got the Snapchat uh, notification cause I got a fucking email about his message. So he messaged me. He said he missed me and I, it was like, miss you. And then the next message was not going to lie. They were consecutive. It wasn't like time between them. Um, and then he and then well and then i um actually folded and uh texted him and i was like miss you too because i had been thinking about him recently not in like a missing him way just in a kind of like like oh this person was like in my life kind of and like there was moments i felt you know connection to him there's never a romantic thing with him he was always just very up and down all over the place um and I messaged him, we were messaging for a day. It was kind of like the flirty back into it, like how we used to talk. And I realized, like, after the fact, the next day, like, I didn't like that. I, I don't like, I can't, like, I especially knew him at a time that was really tumultuous for me. And I can't go back to that. And I also can't just do this, like, almost just, like, try, like satiating, like, flirtiness you know it's just like oh you're just trying to fill a void or fill some sort of need it's not actually about the person or like if it is about the person it's not actually about how much you care about them or love them so what I've been realizing is like I need something a little bit more intimate I need something that's actually like if I'm going to flirt with somebody it needs to be intentional and it needs to be like Like, there needs to be a lot of love there, and there needs to be direct, like, love there. And I need to also, like, have interest in this person and have a full desire to be with this person. And I just don't have that right now for him. Um, My heart kind of is elsewhere. So, yeah, I just think, like, I want a more profound and intimate love, and I realize that's okay. And maybe I shouldn't have messaged him. But I also, like, needed to kind of explore that for myself, I think. Um, Or maybe I was just being... Uh, messy, a messy slut, as they say. So I don't know. That's whatever. I don't care. It's kind of, um, I told him about this podcast. So if he's listening to this at one point, uh, Hey, sorry. Um, sorry. You had to find out this way. (laughs) Shit. Okay. All right. Anyways, come on. Episode six, let's get sickening. And then I do, like, a split, like, Laganja, Estranja in season six of RuPaul's Drag Race, okay? All right, anyways, let's get into it. Okay, so what I'm going to do in this episode is, like, you, I've, if you've ever read, like, an academic paper, you know, like, some they'll have footnotes or sometimes they're endnotes, they're at the end. I did endnotes for this uh, podcast, Like, I did end notes while I was scripting it. So I'm just going to go through episode by episode. I have, you know, usually a few notes for each, sometimes none, but I still want to say something a little bit about each episode. So anyways, hear this. Episode one is I have one note about um, the people I was interviewing. More specifically, like the fact that I talked to one genderqueer person for this project. I, got, I I know, it's kind of crazy. I only talked to one genderqueer person. I didn't talk to any trans people, or at least interview them, you know? Um, the semester that I was scripting this and planning out the original season was just, like, hell. Like, the capstone was hell. So much work. I had so much else going on. I was working. I was in the midst of a situationship. Um, it was just, like, so much. And I just was, like—I I was, like, okay— um, Let me start with my experience and try and find other people who have experiences like I do, you know, like and what I did with that then is I prioritized finding cis women because, again, I've been friends with cis women my whole life Um, and I talked to queer men because I kind of that's how I felt like I identified for many years And then I talk to another genderqueer person, you know, just to kind of, like, get this basis going. And I understand that it's not really, like, the whole picture or whatever. I understand that it's not really, like... Like, I, I would have loved to talk to trans people. I would have loved to talk to disabled people. It just wasn't in the scope of my original thing. I couldn't get it all done in time. Like, I was freaking out and I was like, just like, eh, I don't know, have enough time to do everything. So I stuck with like a smaller group. I wanted to do 15 interviews at first. But I only ended up doing eight. So keep that in mind as well. Um, there's just so much to cover too. What I realized is, like, even with the eight people that I talked to, like, there's still so much that I needed to talk about that I just kind of like kept it to this limited thing. And that's what you know the future is for. That's what potty talk is for. You know, like, I'm going to get to talk to more people, going to get to open it up, going to get to have more expansive conversations with a variety of different people. Um, maybe kind of at first still starting from this initial place of like people I know, people I'm close to, do they have similar experiences to me, but then branching out from there. So that's that note. I also did use mostly like people, like only actually people who are like, have lived in the United States and do live in the United States, like and have for a while, um, which says nothing about like other countries and other cultures and how things might go there. So I get it. I get it. But also like it, I don't think it limited my project though. I think it made it more clear who was I'm, like, talking about. So, anyways, that's my note for episode one. Moving on to episode two. I actually incorporated a lot of my original notes into the episode because I'm just really smart and fabulous like that. Um, But I did want to talk a little bit more more broadly about, like, media depictions of the bathroom. Um, First off, I want to issue a correction from episode two in that I said the line, like... Like in Mean Girls, when Damien's in the bathroom with his like with like Lindsay Lohan and Janice Ian, Um, he doesn't say like, what, what are you going to do about it to the girl who says like, you can't be in here. This is a girl's bathroom. He says, oh, my God, Danny DeVito, I love your work and like runs after her. (laughs) I think it's so good. It's so funny. It's so perfect. It's mean, of course, but girls, it's mean girls. What are you going to What are you gonna say, you know? And mean girls, he has to be mean to be one of the girls in the bathroom and assert his dominance. And also gay men can be catty little fucks sometimes. So, like, yeah, all checks out. Um, two other TV shows that are um, actually the reality TV shows that I can think of that also have this kind of bathroom dynamic, maybe not always explicitly girls' bathroom, but, like, you usually notice it's the girls', so in Jersey Shore, love Jersey Shore first off have to say that um, the original like that launched reality TV to a place that's never been before but that's this is not a reality TV show podcast so I basically they go when they're like in the club and stuff they're like let's go dance in the bathroom um they're talking about doing Coke they're gonna go do Coke in the bathroom like they're they're always like let's dance in the bathroom and it's like on the show and it's filmed and it's really interesting because it's like it's like, um, I don't know, like I, I, the reality TV aspect of that is really interesting. It's also just like everybody knows what they're talking about. I mean, once you're in the know, you're in the know, you know, and the producers, I can't imagine they wouldn't know, you know, that they were doing that. It's also like explains really how they were able to like maintain the fucking lifestyle they did and also why they were so, so fucked up. It's not, you know, when you drink a lot, like you get tired, so you need some cocaine to boost things up if you're going to be like living at the Jersey Shore all summer getting drunk working at a sa- like a shirt shop, shop not a sandwich shop I almost said that Um, working at the shirt shop and it's just like I don't know like I think it's really interesting too that it's like they're using this code on camera to go do drugs in the bathroom which are illegal cocaine being like an illegal drug you know I don't know I think it's very interesting and also very funny that that's like kept into the show too it's like it's like you can't hide in the bathroom, you know. The other thing, other show that they did that in is Vanderpump Rules. Um, they like they'll they'll be like out or something, and they'll be like, "Let's do tequila shots in the bathroom or something." Like I've noticed that a few times of just like like them saying tequila shots is code word for cocaine or drugs or something, you know. So there's kind of these coded things going on too. It's like if you know, you know. You have to be this this is really interesting to me because I think it plays more into this dynamic of like the private and public life in the bathroom and how they kind of collide. And like, especially when you're outside of the bathroom, especially if you're on like reality TV, you know, like you're being watched and you're being watched intensely. You don't know who might be around. If you're in a club, take out the reality TV context. If you're in a club and you're like, want to do some Coke in the bathroom with your friends or something, maybe not Coke, ketamine. Um, (laughs) You could just be like, you can maybe have a code word or a signal to be like, hey, let's go to the bathroom because you never know who's around you. You never know if like club security standing right next to you or something. You never know if there's a narc around, you know, so you have to be more covert. I think this still does play into like this thing I'm thinking of in the bathroom of like secrecy and disclosure, you know, what's the secret? What's disclosed? Like everybody in the bathroom isn't always clued on, clued like clued into what other people are doing, you know, like. Apologies if you hear some cats meowing. It's it's Frank and Matilda. They're right outside the door, and I can't do anything about them. So um, anyways, sorry. They just, like, I just, I just feel like there's this, like, this aspect of, like, there's so much going on inside the bathroom and all of these people having completely different experiences. And, yeah, I don't know. Um, moving on to a real, like, a scripted TV show, Sex Education on Netflix. I was thinking about it. And I don't know if this is necessarily a girl's bathroom, but there is this, like... That show is about, like, this kid who, like, does, like... I mean, it's about, like, a school. But it's about, like, this kid who, like, does sex therapy for other students. Kind of, like, in a covert way. Kind of to, like, combat this kind of negligence of sex education in their own school. His mom was a sex therapist. So, like, he's smart. And he's he's good at it, you know? Like, it's a TV show, too. So, of course, he's good at it. Like, it's, it's fantasy. It's not real. It's pretend. You're an adult. You should know that. Um, but <laughs> I just... They were in this like run down bathroom and like like he would give sex advice through the stalls like and it was it was nice. I think the bathroom eventually got torn down. I just started watching the new season, too, and like they've moved to a new school and stuff. So I think it's just like completely like the bathroom aspects done. The new season's very interesting and I could talk a lot about. But this is not a TV podcast. So, Um, yeah, anyways, those kinds of depictions I see a lot. Um, Yeah. And then I just think what I've noticed, too the like about these variety of bathroom experiences, especially in scripted TV shows. It's usually like, um, teen shows. Oh my God. Another teen show I can think of. I can't believe I forgot to mention this fucking glee. Glee. Um, there's I, probably multiple instances. I can think of actually one, um, that I wasn't going to mention, but I just popped in my head about in like a later season. There's this, the, the character Marley, And Kitty, like, I think there's a sense of, like... Marley develops an eating disorder because Glee goes there. Um, And I think Kitty's, like, encouraging it or doing shit to fuck with her. And there's, like, scenes of them in the bathroom and maybe Kitty fucking with her head a little bit. Or, like, Marley going to Purge or something. It's really intense. Um, But, God, that show is so intense. What was not intense, though, about that show is... I can think of this one specific song. They did Telephone by Lady Gaga and Beyoncé. And Rachel Berry, played by the illiterate Leah Michelle, um, went into the bathroom to like harass one of the new kids at the school who was like an amazing singer-, singer. Her name was Sunshine Corazon. I don't know the actress's name. I'm so sorry. She like went in. She she's like in, trying to intimidate her. And then they like sing Telephone by Lady Gaga. You know, this is will be a little treat that I'll share at some point. Emma and I actually did a recreation of this scene a few years back during like living in our first apartment during, like, COVID, very intense COVID times. And, like, because COVID's still happening. I was – we haven't gone out. COVID cases are rising. Get your tests from the government and wear a mask. Um, I – but, like, I – we have – we recreated that video, so I'll put that somewhere at one point. Um, But it ends with, like, with uh, Sue Sylvester, played by Jane Lynch, like, coming into the bathroom and being like, shut up! like looking like so offended, like so mad, like why the fuck you're belting out this song in the bathroom as if there's not other people around, as if people can't hear you outside the bathroom. So it's like, it takes this really funny aspect of these like musical shows or musicals in general. And just like, you know, there's this like sense of fantasy because sometimes people are singing in these shows and it's like, they're obviously not singing in real life. It's like, a vehicle to express their emotions or something, and like you're seeing this depiction of them. It, it's like this takes you, because in Glee, they are singing in real life sometimes. So it's like, takes you out of that moment of just like them singing in the bathroom. And- And, and the shut up, like, it's just like, shut up. What are you doing? You're singing in the bathroom. First off, Sue Sylvester hates the glee club. So it's like, you're already pissing her off too. This is not the bathrooms for it's not for you to have show lip sync showdowns. I guess it's not lip sync. It's not for you to have singing showdowns in the bathroom, you know? So anyways, those are some of the things I can think of. I'm, I know that there's thousands and thousands of more examples of the bathroom in the media, but these are kind of like girl-centric ones, or like, or like sex or taboo-centric ones that I think are really interesting to note. You know, so, anyways, moving on. Episode three, I I really um, I, I did incorporate some of these notes into my initial like original project, um, but one. Thing I wanted to note or a few things I wanted to note the first thing being like gay men and women and their friendships, you know, and I mentioned I wanted to like explore those a little bit more, and I still do, but I just want to note more like this is a very interesting thing about like how gender comes up because I think about um the ways in which gay men and women can kind of uh like how power dynamics there can marginalize each other and how they can kind of be like, you know, women can be homophobic towards their gay men or do like the GBF, like, I want a gay best friend, like, kind of thing, you know? Or gay men can be misogynistic and, like, weird to women and, like, all that shit. But I I I think there's a reason why gay men and women are, like, friends, you know? Like, also, especially, like, gay men and like and, like, queer women, like, they're like this you know? So sorry. Um, if you wanted to see what I just did, watch the video episode. Um, but like, I think it's just like, it's really interesting about how they do that. They do these playing into norms and stuff, but they also stray away from them too. You know, I mentioned why, I, why I mentioned this and why this is in my notes is because I talked about Tim in my, like, in my, like when I interviewed him, you know? Um, and I talked about how he like, went into the bathroom to like, take care of his friend in there, you know? And I think that's really interesting. Like he went into the girl's bathroom. He didn't care about like that much about how people, or he did care about how people were going to perceive him, but he didn't like, that didn't prevent him from going to take care of his sick friend, you know? And I think about my own experiences as a gay man, quote unquote. Um, and how like, I, you know, again, this idea of, like, socialization to be a certain gender and socialization being stronger than anything. Like, I saw this TikTok recently of just kind of, like, you know, they have those skits and stuff where it's, like, they're playing out some sort of, like, argument with, like, somebody as, like, trying to prove a way of, like, this, like, talking point point this fallacy wrong. The talking point was, like, oh, I don't want uh, trans women in locker rooms with me because they were socialized to be men and so they might be viewing me in, like, a sexual light. Um Which is um, weird to think, and throughout the skit, that person, whoever was the creator, kind of just, like, debunked that myth, you know? Um, I just think it's really interesting, though, about, like... this aspect of like socialization like that is ingrained to you and nothing can undo that. You know, like people don't understand that being trans or being gender queer or even coming to understand yourself as queer can undo this kind of socialization. Especially if you're like looking deeply about gender in your life, like it can like kind of rewrite yourself, especially if you're putting in the work to do that. And I think about my own experiences and I'm like, yeah, I've definitely like worked through a lot of this male or man socialization that I've had. And, like, I don't really feel like I live and operate in the world in a manly way. And I also think, too, that, like, for most of my life, even before I did that unlearning, like, I was genderqueer. Like, I was socialized as genderqueer, too. Like, because what I think this aspect of socialization ignores is like, people's own perceptions of themselves, or the ways people find community in other people, ways people learn about other things, and start to unlearn things about themselves that aren't true, far beyond, like, a socialization aspect, and also, like, even as you're being socialized to be a certain gender, you still have all these things, like, especially if you're queer, or genderqueer, or trans, or whatever, like, you have all these things that kind of, like, determine how your gender is going to go, you know, so I think it's really interesting, like, just to kind of like resist this notion of socialization being like the essential thing. That's essentialist. It's a different kind of essentialism. It's not bioessentialism, you know, it's not boiling people's down to their biology, but it's this like social like essentialism, you know, it's like you were socialized this way and it's almost becomes your biology it almost becomes something that's seen as innate and inherent to you. Um, I don't know. I think it's really interesting that like in even, even more progressive people can kind of get stuck in this trap of like, you're, you're like a certain type of way, or you were a certain type of way, and you're always going to be that type of way, you know, like, I don't know, I think maybe it's a little cliche to say, like, people can change, but like, it's or like, to say, even like, people do change, you know, like, that is just true, like people change and grow. and If you're going to be bringing your biases and your perceptions about other people to every single interaction that you have, you need to do some serious fucking work and look at yourself because what is that doing besides constraining and limiting the people around you? What is that doing besides, you know, perpetuating these myths and ideas that end up causing violence to people, you know? So I don't know. I think it's really interesting. I think gay men and women kind of show how this socialization can be superseded and like I think about my own experiences too, about like how my socialization, being with like close women friends my whole life, like there also wasn't this sense of like, like there is this disconnect, especially with cis women, I do feel of like, you don't fully understand me. It's not because I'm a man, it's because I'm genderqueer, you know? And I felt with genderqueer people in my life, I haven't felt that disconnect. So it's just like, I don't know, like I, th- 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 where are the, where are these differences actually arising? And are they arising from like, living in the world in a certain way or being like trained to be a certain way. I don't think it's always this training. I think people, especially people who are conscious of themselves, beyond queer and genderqueer people, if you are conscious of identity and power in this world and how it works, you are doing an important part in unlearning socialization. Even if you are a cis man, for example, if you are putting in that work and you're understanding yourself, even if you're a cis cishet straight, straight man, like, you're still not just boiling down to your socialization, you know, like this idea keeps everybody limited. It keeps also men from being able to transgress this like patriarchal norm that they live in and this violence that they have maybe been taught, you know? So give people more credit than they like are given, you know, my next note is about like the men's locker room and the men's bathroom and that social experience, not being the same as the girl's bathroom. Um, but, like, one thing I wanted to know is somebody brought this up to me about, like, their experiences in the men's bathroom. Like, they don't think of that place as a social place. They kind of go do, go about their business, leave. They've noticed that older men do talk to each other more in the bathroom, you know? And I think that's very interesting about, like, what is it about an older generation of men that they might just be, like, more open to being social in the bathroom and how this isn't a sign of, like... Because I... Excuse me? I would like to say that, like a lot of men nowadays don't talk to each other in the bathroom. Cause it's like, why are you talking to somebody at the urinal? It's like, you're gay, you know, like you're talking to me while I'm pissing, leave me alone. Um, like there's that aspect of it. And what is it about older men? That's kind of like letting go of that. Um, and I think about the men's locker room too, um, how this is much more like for, again, this like aspect of like if if people were gay based off their actions solely based off their actions so many more men would be gay because of how they acted in the locker room you know um i I haven't done research on it i have not spent many times in men's locker rooms especially like in a school environment but i'm going to one day and i'm going to i want to like have people who know this and like know this experience and we'll talk about it so there's that Another note is like, I think about cruising in the bathroom for men, you know, I know this is a big thing and I'm curious about it. You know, I've never partaked myself partook in, um, but I know about it and I've heard about it and I've seen it, um, in some ways, but <laughs> <clears throat> I know that it's like usually groups of men. Like, it's not always just like one-on-one it's it is sometimes I think that happens. I know that there can be like groups of men, like five or six men, like, you know, sucking and fucking in the bathroom at one time like together in a group and I'm just like is this spontaneous like I'm curious about like the logistics of it like do they plan this out beforehand is it like is it spontaneous is it just like a man goes into the bathroom and he's like sees people sucking dick and it's like I'm gonna get my dick sucked you know (laughs) like kind of like out of nowhere like is it like do they use like an app like sniffies which is like and if you've never heard of sniffies it's this like location based like literally you get a map and all around the map are cocks, you know? <laughs> you choose a cock and you and you message them and you're like, do you want to fuck? And you go and fuck them, basically. I've never used it. I haven't. I haven't. Um, but it's just very, like, it is, like it, it's a good way about, like, if you want to get anonymous sex in, you know? Quick, low pump and dump. Like, that's a good way to do it. Um, and then I was just like, the thing is about cruising that astonishes me the most. I was like, how can there be that many gays there, you know? And then there's this whole, like, straight men who get their dicks suck kind of thing where it's like they're straight but they just like to have sex and put their dick in things I guess I'm not here to judge I just don't to me when I hear about men fucking other men I don't usually th- call them straight Um I would say they're DL you know like like, they're, they're bisexual or they're gay or something, and they're just, like, on the down low. But, like I, – and I also think that's a part of cruising, too. It's just, like, DL guys going in. Um, and I don't know. Like it, and based off of what I've heard about cruising, um, it seems like there's a lot more faggot-ass men out there than we've been led to believe. Um, so, uh, yeah, I don't know. What are we going to do about that? Anyways, moving on to my final few notes of this episode – Um, one of the things that I've thought about a lot throughout this project is the bathroom as a closet, you know, the closet as a metaphor for gay and lesbian oppression too, you know, like, like the closet being this thing that is like having like public spaces more generally for queer people having to be like, like you have to be covert. You can't be overt. You can't like hold hands with your partner in public. Obviously this is changing and has changed, but like. The closet allows people to keep their non-heterosexuality or non-cisness muted. The bathroom's closeting because I think of this gendered notion. You know, you walk into the bathroom and immediately you're a man or woman, especially if it's a gendered bathroom. I should clarify, it's like men, women. You disclose a sense of identity or even like, like if you're like me, you're a genderqueer person that like presents the way I do. You have to go into a men's bathroom it kind of sig- signals this like maleness to people, you know. Um and i think that's just like really like this disclosure is very powerful and it, it it very much like i can't closet it's almost like i can't reverse closet. Like i can't be authentic. I guess that would be disclose. I can't disclose who i am just by doing something, you know. Um if i enter a men's bathroom, that discloses something about me that's like oh, I'm male, or I'm man. And, like, that. there's usefulness in that, especially if you're living in, like, a violent space or a violent, like, kind of, like, society that does isn't very accepting, or, you know, maybe you live in, like, the South or something, like, in a state where it's not very welcoming for gay people or queer people or trans people, whatever. Um, I don't know. So there is usefulness in being able to mute yourself is what I'm trying to say. I also think it's very interesting, too, like, It's very hard to not mute yourself when you go into these spaces, even if you want to be open and proud or whatever, because you just got to use the bathroom and you don't want to go through all this hassle, you know? So you sacrifice that like, like other people and how they might treat you, like they might think of you or might view you as like a certain gender to just be able to go to the bathroom. So this closet, again, the closet is, I I came to realize this um, throughout my life and like it, it was a very hard realization for me at first. Um, When I was younger, I was only closeted for like, I would say three, four years, five years when I was like a teen and stuff. Very young. I knew I was gay. I came out to my friends in like fifth grade. Then I came out to my um, mom and dad and family, I guess like a few years later in eighth grade. Um, The closet is psychological warfare and it leaves scars on you and it leaves impressions on you that are very damaging and very hard to work through and unlearn. And we don't talk about that enough. And we don't think about the closet as violent enough, you know, like to be o- always paranoid that somebody's going to find you out to be always on watch to feel like you're wrong. Cause a lot of pe- queer people or trans people think that they're wrong for being the way they are. Um, to, like, always be thinking about something that, you know, for a lot of queer people throughout their life, like, I would say, like, my, my queerness and my gender queerness is kind of innate to me, like, or whatever, you know, it's, like, it's not really, it's a big deal, but it's not, like, I'm not thinking about it all the time, I'm not worrying about it all the time, but I will say, too, that, like, being genderqueer and non-binary and coming to understand myself as that, like, I do have these scars from that, too, and it's a little bit more profound too, like when you have to go back into the closet or when you have to continuously come out to everybody in your life or like with like the pronouns I use, I have to kind of be like, like, like be like, like if I want to correct somebody, you know, like having to do that all the time is exhausting. Having to continuously come out is exhausting, puts you back in that closet, brings up this trauma. And a lot of people don't have the resources or tools to work through that trauma for many, many years. So in thinking of the bathroom as a closet, I think it's really interesting to note that, like, this isn't just, like, any mundane thing. Like, it is violent. It becomes a violent space for people, whether it's psychologically, physically, emotionally, whatever. There is violence going on because the closet is psychological warfare, period. Um, Also, something else I think about disclosures, I'm like, sometimes I think about gender-neutral or all-gender bathrooms and using them and, like, is that also like an act of disclosure? It can that be seen as disclosing your identity, being like like I think or maybe there's this myth that you are, you know, like by going into an all-gender bathroom, then you're then you're not cisgender or something, you know, like which isn't true, first off. But also like there might be truth to that. I remember in high school there was an all-gender bathroom, and there's like one openly genderqueer person in my school. Maybe not one, but like there was a a notable one. Um god they were and i remember going into the bathroom one time like the all-gender bathroom and i would go in there and i'd vape like honestly i was just going in there to vape and shit and like also i think too like i didn't wasn't consciously genderqueer in high school but like there was a sense of like i hated going into that men's bathroom especially in high school i think about it now i actually avoided men's bathrooms as much as possible um And I think about it now, there's – so we would – I went to a Quaker school. We would have meeting for worship. Um, It's 40 minutes sitting in silence. Some days I just really couldn't do that. I had too much going on or I just wanted to fuck around, you know. Me and one of my friends would go into uh, (laughs) like the girls' bathroom in the basement where like meeting for worship was happening. And we'd like sit on the – looking back, why the fuck was I doing this? Disgusting, dirty as fuck. Sit on the floor of like each stall, and then just like, (laughs) what we would do. This is so gross. I can't believe I'm saying this. We would like take toilet paper, we'd like dip it into the toilet, but we, I don't think we'd always touch it. And then we'd like smack it against like the wall and we'd like make like collages of this wet toilet paper against the stall in the girl's bathroom. That was a very fun experience. Um, otherwise I would just like later on, I would just start to like go into a bathroom, choose that bathroom, be in there for 40 minutes, you know? Um, never with other people, I would always be away from the men. Like I would always be scared. Like every time I was in a men's bathroom in high school, somebody, I recognize or know would come in we necessarily wouldn't talk or like maybe we would that whole that whole social experience was actually very 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 scary to me you know having to talk to a boy that i knew in the bathroom fucking scary for me i was always scared anyways i got on a tangent whatever i come out of that like all gender bathroom and like see this genderqueer person like standing there like tapping their foot like cross like like cross you know like why are you using this bathroom you know Um, I remember like, in a sense, it's like you then because like this person was then like the arbiter of what my identity was, you know, because like, yeah, you know, I get it now, especially I get it too. If you're a genderqueer person and you're using the bathroom, like, like, like if you need to use the bathroom and the only all gender bathroom is taken up, that's frustrating. You know, at the same time, you can't be going around assuming what other people are, are identifying as, you know, like. And yeah, also you can't be getting mad at people for using an all-gender bathroom. It's for all genders. Like, go don't get mad at the person. Get mad at the fact that like the bathroom system is fucked up. You know. Um, anyways, and but we do have a responsibility to each other too. That's sure. That like for sure true. But you can't do that with something that's like not visible. You know, like maybe it's a little bit different if you're like a disabled person gets mad at you for using like a wheelchair accessible stall. Like it's not the same kind of dynamic there it's like you knew that like you didn't have to use that saw the the identity is more visible you know whatever i anyways getting away from the point um but yeah again the bathroom is a closet and there's so much about identity going on regardless of whether it's like a girl's bathroom or not it's all all these bathrooms have disclosures and secrecy and closeting going on so my last note for episode three is i asked the question um I, I was talking about more, more so I was talking about like Zoe saying that they would, if they saw like someone who they thought to be a man or they, or other people perceived as a man, if they saw that person enter the bathroom, especially if they're like a queer, gender queer person or trans person, like they had an instinct to protect them, the impulse to protect that person. And I asked, why did Zoe have that impulse? And I didn't get the same impulse from cis women. All I want to say is that's a rhetorical question, you know? I, I know why. I know it's because genderqueer and trans people know these experiences more intimately, and cis people just will not think about that. They will just only think about their own perceptions of gender and how gender plays out. They will only, only, only see this person and see a man. They won't think about the fact that, like, this person might need empathy or compassion or companionship or allyship, too, you know? Um... And this isn't when I'm talking, like, the instance I'm talking about is not necessarily, like, you see a man walk into the bathroom, just, like, regular old, like, straight guy, you know? Like, like it is about, like, a genderqueer person or somebody who looks like me walking into the girl's bathroom. So, it was a rhetorical question. I know why. Let's take a bathroom break. Moving on to episode four, Um, yeah, I think about the bathroom, or I tried to at first, about as like, like a marginal space, you know, like, I I don't think it fully worked. I was trying to work this idea into the original project. Um, I don't think I really got there, but I wanted to explore it here. And so here are some of my original thoughts. Um, So marginality. The bathroom is a marginal space in some ways. If you think about the physical construction of space and public spaces, bathrooms are usually placed on the outskirts, outside of the main body. I draw on this idea of marginality from bell hooks mostly, mostly from her 2015 text, Feminist Theory from Margins to Center. She tells the following story about her family growing up as a black American working class family in a small Kentucky town. So she says, quote, To be in the margin is to be part of the whole, but outside the main body. For black Americans living in a small Kentucky town, the railroad tracks were a daily reminder of our marginality. Across those tracks were paved streets, stores we could not enter, restaurants we could not eat in, and people we could not look directly in the face. Across those tracks was a world we could work in as maids, as janitors, as prostitutes, as long as it was in a service capacity. We could enter that world, but we could not live there. We always had to return to that margin, to beyond the tracks, to shacks and abandoned houses on the edge of town. There were laws to ensure our return. To not return was to risk being punished. Living on the edge, as we did, we developed a particular way of seeing reality. We looked both from the outside in and the inside out. We focused our attention on the center as well as on the margin. We understood both. This mode of seeing reminded us of the existence of a whole universe, a main body made up of both margin and center. Our survival depended on an ongoing public awareness of the separation between margin and center and an ongoing private acknowledgement that we were a necessary, vital part of the whole. This sense of wholeness, impressed upon our consciousness by the structure of our daily lives, provided us an oppositional worldview a mode of seeing unknown to most of our oppressors that sustained us, aided us in our struggle to transcend poverty and despair and strengthened our sense of self and solidarity. So I recognize too that like a lot of those things that I just said, don't really resonate with the bathroom at all. I, I kind of read that whole thing just cause I really love the quote. I think hooks is a phenomenal writer and I just like really wanted to honor all that she was saying. Um, But in imagining the bathroom as marginal, I do kind of see like a few functions that make it this marginal space. So first off, you have to cross a physical boundary to enter the space. Second, once you're in, then you like become reminded of your dirty self or your primal self and you check in with yourself in the mirror. You kind of get a chance to like look at yourself outside of like the social body. Like that's kind of a marginal way. Um, you are reminded of yourself, and you're the way you operate in the space around you. You know, this can be seen as an act of remembering the whole body. You know, finally, the physical location of the bathroom separates it from whatever space it's in, and kind of is like an annex to the main body. So it is this other part. You know, beyond these functions, I don't think that the bathroom universally embodies marginality and does not necessarily impress this oppositional worldview onto those who enter the bathroom. However, the marginality of the bathroom does seem to interact with marginal identities in specific ways and can allow for a more oppositional worldview. So women go to the bathroom to escape escape creepy men or talk about the men in their lives. In theory, this can allow women to work through their interactions with patriarchal violence or power structures and allows the potential to resist these structures too. However, Since the bathroom itself doesn't necessarily embody marginality, women who align themselves with patriarchy will not internalize these reflections in the bathroom. And, like, women are centered in the girls' bathroom, so it's not like the bathroom is a marginal space necessarily, you know? Like, and they're centered by the state. They're centered, it's legal, like, it's state-sanctioned margins, basically. Um, But then genderqueer people might have a closer relationship to the marginality of the bathroom. Our worldview is more oppositional to gender than it might be for cis people, and I say might because there are cis people who have oppositional worldviews. But entering the bathroom reminds us of our own marginality under a binary gender system. We have to negotiate our identity in this space. We have to understand ourselves and the spaces that we're entering, because our survival depends on it. Through this understanding, we also may learn how to resist it, You know, for genderqueer people, the bathroom feels like an extension of the center, too, despite this marginality that I kind of see in here. We cross the threshold of the bathroom door and we have to learn the rules of the space in order to survive. There are laws to ensure that we use the right bathroom, you know, like this makes us develop a particular way of seeing the world and living in the world. So all of these features of the bathroom reveal the, the marginality of the bathroom space, or the potential for the marginality, especially as a space for a non, like, for gender non-conforming people, and also shows how our marginality is reinforced in everyday life. So in Grada Colombo's Who Can Speak, Speaking at the Center, Decolonizing Knowledge, she says that, quote, "...the margins are both a site of repression and a site of resistance." Both sites are always present because where there is oppression, there is resistance. In other words, oppression forms the conditions for resistance. End quote. So from the margins, genderqueer people can resist gendering, but ultimately we are still repressed by the gender of like the systems around us, you know. The bathroom is a reminder of both that repression, but also our rep- capacity to resist. Because from the bathroom and our experiences there, we learn about our bodies, our communities, our institutions, and our world. So that's where I see marginality, or at least saw marginality in the bathroom. I'm still not sold 100%. I'm still not like, it's perfect. But I do think there's this thing too, just like understanding, getting a better understanding of what marginality actually does. And like... Reading Hooks's work kind of made me understand why being a marginalized person or mar- having marginalized identity, why I see things in a certain way and why other people don't. You know, it's not necessarily because I have some bias or whatever. It's because I've had experience. I've had experience that is speaking to truth. It's not speaking to some sort of like delusion. It's speaking to truth. Like what Hooks was saying, there's legal things, there's social things that ensure these things are in system, like these systems are in place and then... Like, like who's left to examine that? You know, it's the people who have to enter both the center and the margins. And it's the people who have to fight to survive. So, yeah, that's marginality. Anyways, I also want to like talk a little bit about like um, ephemera now. I want to return to ephemera like I did before. In thinking about ephemera, I think about this piece that I uh, drew from originally. It was... It was from the Women's Studies Journal. It was the introduction. It was like ephemera is evident, like introduction to queer acts or something, something like that. That's what it was called. And he talks about ephemera and queer acts. So what is a queer act? Um, Who knows? (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. I think queer acts kind of can be summarized as like things that are queer that queer people do together or queer people have done that the second... A non queer viewpoint sees it or grabs it, it like disappears, you know, like so something that can be seen as a queer act and then and then the act of like doing this thing kind of makes it disappear too. I don't know it's very complicated, it's very confusing. I understood at one point, and i can't I can't come back. I don't know, not right, not right now. um maybe I'll do an episode on queer acts in the future. Um, it's just an episode about, like, people fucking, I don't know, like, people watching RuPaul's Drag Race, um, although I would say that's not necessarily an exclusively queer act, because straight people love RuPaul. Um, but yeah, but th- that piece that I mentioned, the the Jose Munoz piece, from where I draw the idea of ephemera from, begins by looking at a photo series by uh, photographer Tony Just, which examined the public men's bathroom, which... And I was, like, doing this process originally, and I, like, was thinking back to this piece. I was like, oh, maybe that's one of the reasons why the bathroom's so interesting to me. Anyways, Munoz says, quote, Tony just visited a rundown public men's room, a tea room where public sex flourishes. He scrubbed and sanitized the space, laboring to make it look pristinely, shimmeringly clean. The result is a photograph that indexes not only the haunted space and spectral bodies of those anonymous sex acts and just performances after them, but also his act of documentation. End quote. So, the photographer's sanitization of this space represents both the blending of the ephemeral and the archivable. In cleaning this dirty, grungy space in preparation for his photograph, He's removing the traces of what went on in there, while also intentionally documenting the spaces where they occurred. In many ways, the sanitization represents an exemplary queer act, as Munoz notes, in which queer experiences in a space are obscured in favor of cleanliness and order, or like, you know, the norm. Here, ephemera exists in a queer imagination, an imagination of somebody who knows the history and reality of gay public sex in the bathroom. To the untrained eye and the unfelt heart, the ephemerality will elude them. The queerness of the space will be lost on them. And this is the power of ephemera. Um, and I think about this too, like what ephemera really does is it allows for us to archive queer and genderqueer feelings through listening to us and listening to our stories. It requires a different form of knowing. Okay, so episode five, my last most recent episode. So I didn't have actually any end notes for this episode, but I just want to reflect on the reflections and the process of making this whole thing. So, one, I think about the form of season one, you know, the form of why, like, I did these five episodes. I think I did this because, I mean, in my original scripting, I did these five episodes. I chose these five episodes to do, and I kind of realized that, like, like, in going back and editing things, yeah, I could have broken up information more, or maybe I could have, like, done different things. I I wanted to honor the work that I did, basically, because there was a lot of work, and I thought there was a lot of really good work, but, like, I may not even thought I was told that. I know that I put a lot of work into this, and I chose to include the information I did because it fit, you know? Um, But... Yeah, I think this is, like, what I did, too, and what I've come to realize is that this is just a starting place, you know? I'm not done. Like, there's no way I could have been done after these five episodes. And to start with my original research, to start where I'm starting from, is my, like, like comes from me. Like, it comes from my experiences. It's kind of what I was talking about at the beginning of this episode of, like, why did I choose the people I chose to interview. I mean, one, because of time, I would also say two, I chose these episodes because of time. Um, like it just works better for like, I, I don't have all these time in the world to do be doing this, but like, I don't know. It also is just like, what I've realized is it's like the core of this. It's a core of what I would be doing. Why, why in the first place am I sitting here talking about the bathroom and gender and all this stuff? So that's why season one went the way it did. It's why it was like episodic to serialize, like episode to episode builds on each other, listen in order, you know? Um, but yeah, that felt necessary to me. It's not going to be forever too. You know, season two will be kind of like, you can jump around, you can listen to one episode here and you can listen to like the next episode, like released a few weeks later, you know, it's not like one, two, three. So that's changing. Um, Yeah. And then I think too, about like podcasting life and like how it's gone, you know, like the whole process for this is like, I worked on this fall, 2022 did not work on it at all. Spring 2023. Then started again, this most recent summer I had like, I, I was working on this for credit. I was thinking I was going to get more like out and released and stuff, um, earlier, But then I realized how much editing I had to do. And then I also realized how much it fucking takes to distribute and like record and edit a podcast. Oh my God. All those things. First off, distribution. I had struggles at first. There's weird things. I couldn't get it all like done in the way I wanted it to. A lot of looking stuff up, a lot of figuring things out on my own. Then, um, recording, I will say that every episode, including this one, except for the last episode five, I've recorded more than once. Like, I've done multiple takes of and, like, literally multiple takes in the sense of, like, I've sat down all the way through recorded and then been like, no, I actually want to change something or no, I actually want to do something different. This is kind of, like, the trap of, like, a scripted podcast is that, like, like, there's not like, you have more stuff that you need to, like, say or you have, like, an edit that you need to make because you have a script to draw from, you know um, which is why I'm excited to not be scripting all of this shit in the future. Like I love to just have conversations and see where they go, you know? So that's, it's been a lot. And then editing has been a lot. The only like editing help I've had was like the first episode was edited by Emma. Cause she's like film and media scholar, um, <laughs> film and media queen. Um, but yeah, like I, everything else I've been editing this. I'm not, I'm, I haven't learned how to edit things, you know, like, Nobody's taught me that, so it's been a lot of me figuring things out, mixing the things at the end, like, that's complicated, and I still don't feel like I have fully found something that I really feel like I like, you know? Um, I mean, the audio sounds good, but, like, I'm like, it could be better, you know? Um, and then, like, why the fuck did I do podcasts? podcast, you know? The, the things are, like, first off, it's so much work, and for not a lot of reason at this point, like, I had the academic credit, but I'm graduated, you know? Second, the like podcasting market is so like overcrowded, you know, like oversaturated. Like there's so many podcasts and there's so many people making podcasts. Like, and I, I'm not expecting though, like anything, like it it doesn't like, like all these things telling me that maybe I shouldn't be doing it or it's hard or you won't like do this or that. It's like, all of this still feels very enjoyable and very necessary to me. Even when shit comes up, I can work through it. it makes me makes me learn how to work through obstacles and shit, you know? So I would still do this. I would still make this podcast, even, even if it was just like me who listened to it, you know? I would still do it. That being said, it, it, will I probably need to, you know, take some time here or there? Hell yeah, I probably will. But I'm not going to like this is an important project to me and I want to keep doing it. So, yeah, that's why I did it. And then finally, I kind of want to reflect on the future a little bit. So, like I said at the beginning of the episode, we have bonus content coming soon. Um, My original interviews with Emma, Lila and Zoe, two of them will be video. I'm very excited for that. Very. This is also another part of the podcast thing. I haven't edited video before. Who knows how this will go? I already had fucking my story. I just ordered the hard drive and I hasn't come here yet, but my storage on my fucking laptop, you would think my laptop's from like 2012 about how slow it runs and how quickly it runs out of storage. You all know that messages will take up 30 plus gigabytes of storage in your like MacBook because fucking attachments, you know, and I've deleted now three times the attachments. Every time I delete the attachments off my computer, it comes back, come, comes back more. Like there's at least 10 gigabytes more every time I delete it. So they're really trying to fuck with me. I just had to disable messages like while I was recording this because I had a little editing blunder. Um, it was, like recording blunder. I should say like, it was really fucking annoying, I, but I didn't lose it. I'm here. Um, I started talking about, I went on a tangent anyways, video episodes coming, bonus content coming soon. And then season two potty talk. Will be coming out soon too. I'm so excited. Like, I, it, like, all this initial stuff has been kind of the scope of what I've been thinking about for this podcast for the longest time until the past few months. Until I realized, like, oh, my favorite podcasts are when people are sitting down having a conversation. I should just do that too. And so I will. Um, it'll be more flexible, listen to the episodes as you wish, and I might have some video episodes where I can, again, editing's a fucking thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know, I, I'm very excited, I'm very grateful, like, fucking grateful for all of this, like, um, I don't know, it's been such a, like, amazing journey to get feedback, like. I, to like build kind of this like repertoire of my own work and stuff and to have like, like I'm building my backlog right now, you know, like I'm about to record a bunch of new episodes that I can have to edit. I'll be traveling the next few months. So I'll be releasing stuff as I travel. Also bear with me for any things that might come up, but yeah, I don't know. Very excited, very grateful. And let's see what the future has in store, you know? So. That being said, it's time to wrap up. Um, I will say that I don't have a book of the week this week, but I do have a text of the week this week, and I don't have the physical thing with me. I don't know where it is. I lost it. But I will say my text of the week this week is Ephemera as Evidence, Introductory Notes to Queer Acts by Jose Esteban Munoz. Um, Phenomenal piece took me, at first, uh, multiple class sessions and multiple hours to s- sit through and understand it and read it. Um, but once I did, I literally would sit line by line going through, what does this word mean? What is he trying to say? And when I did that, I got it. I think maybe that's why the piece stuck with me so much, too. It's because like I put so much work into understanding it. For good reason. So 1996 article by Jose Espan Munoz, um, in the woman in performance, like feminist journal, um, introduces the other scholarly works that are in there, talks a whole bunch about, you know, regimes of rigor, um, that go into like verifying what's, what's evidence and what's not, how like the academic, academic spaces like gatekeep information or push out information that can't be quote unquote verified, um you have the discussion around queer acts that I was just talking about earlier. There's notes about ephemera, like ephemeral evidence and what that can prove. Um, yeah. And it's just a beautifully like thought through piece. And Jose Esteban Munoz was like a fabulous, like critical scholar. And I love him so much and rest in peace. Like he's amazing. So, um, Very grateful that this piece exists, very grateful for his life and his work, and very sad that he's not with us still. Um, But yeah, my text of the week this week, Ephemeris Evidence, Introductory Notes to Queer Acts, by Jose Munoz. (sighs) Questions, comments, rumors, and more can be sent to with at gmail.com. You can follow me at david.mckeever on Instagram and you can follow the do you want to come with podcast uh, TikTok Instagram um, and YouTube as well at do you want pod um yeah welcome to YouTube hi YouTube um and yeah if you have anything like um a reminder I'm not looking for critiques on my work um some bitches forget that um not anybody who's actually listened to the podcast. I'll say this is another little gossipy piece, that man who I was talking about, who I used to, you know, dot, dot, dot. Um, One of the first things he did when I told him about my podcast was started to critique it. And who the fuck do you think you are? Maybe that's why I was also turned off by him. (laughs) Anyways, um, be on the lookout for bibliography, from this whole project at some point. it might take the form of an episode. I might just, like, post it somewhere. So, you know, all about vibes. It's a little vibing over here. I don't know. Did something weird with my hands. This, um... Ugh, I don't like that. I don't like what I just did. I'm so sorry. It doesn't make me feel good. Um, anyway <laughs> Oh, my God. <clears throat> Until we reach the end together again... I am your gracious and effervescent and live, sexy, in-video host, David McKeever. This has been season one of Do You Want to Come With? Thanks for listening. Bye!